Hosea 11, as we um, uh, continue this series in the book of Hosea, now just a few um, chapters away uh, from the end. Um, I'll read this morning verses 1 through 11. Uh, So would you give your attention to the reading of God's holy word? Uh, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on running away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have revealed yourself to us in your word and in Language we can read and know and understand and and you've condescended to us in that way so that we might know you and know of your uh, your attributes of who you are and your work of salvation and deliverance in this world. We pray that you would teach us that you would grow us that you would deepen our understanding of that sovereign work of redemption, but also that you would deepen our love for the lost and for you through this, your word. We ask it all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. One of the things I say frequently, kind of the regular conversations I have with, um, with parents, with, particularly with younger parents, with people with you know, kind of younger children, and they're watching their kids grow and, and hit the terrible twos and get an attitude and all these sorts of things. You know, one of the conversations that, that frequently comes up is parenting is the greatest, worst thing we ever do in life. And, and there's, I think there's sort of some truth to that, that, that at some level, it's wonderful, and it seems like all along the way you want to freeze a moment. You want to freeze a time. You want to freeze, oh, they're doing this really cute thing all of a sudden, or they're learning to walk, or they're you know, developing this new skill, this new pattern, this new smile, this new interaction, whatever, and you want to freeze it, and you hate the thought of losing it. But then you also recognize that if you freeze it, 
You'll miss out on the next things. You'll miss out on the ones to come. You'll miss out on the growth and development and maturity over time. You'll miss out on how that relationship changes through the years. And so it really is kind of this sense of torment. It's this sense of, um, of, of I don't know, confusion and difficulty for parents. Because all along the way, you, it's the greatest and the worst thing ever at any given moment. What's interesting is we actually get a glimpse of that in this chapter. But it's not from people. It's from God himself. God himself actually sort of lets us into his own sense of parenting as Israel's father and lets us into that world and and gives us a glimpse of the fact that that even for him here in this chapter, parenting is turmoil. The reality is God's going through exactly the same thing here in Hosea 11. He knows the feeling. First, I want you to see the prodigal son rejects the father's care. Did you you notice the way um, Hosea, the first four verses describe um, God and his relationship to Israel? Right. It's all this language of of loving, tender parenting. Israel is, in fact, called his son. And it's this language, this delight, this tone of a father who delights in the growth of his son. Now, you, you, you can go back to Exodus 12. You can go reread the Passover account when uh, those houses covered by the blood of the lamb, uh, the death angel passes over those houses. And so if you're, if you're covered by the blood of the lamb then you are freed from judgment in Exodus 12. That's supposed to make you think of Jesus. But it's in that moment, in that act, it's in that that event that Israel gets adopted as God's firstborn son. It's through this exodus, it's through this deliverance, it's through this Passover that that we see Israel take on the name of God and bear his 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 name wherever they go. He's he declares then and there that he has formed them into a nation and has adopted them as their own. And so here. Hosea picks up on that language, that idea that being called out of Egypt, verse 1, Israel was also called God's son. Now, my sense is, and, and maybe this isn't exactly true in this room, but it's certainly true in this community. But my sense is that we tend to think, and we've, we've talked about this before, this has come up plenty of times, but we tend to think that The God of the Old Testament is somehow harsher, different, more difficult, maybe even more demanding. And for that matter, what love he does does give, he kind of gives begrudgingly. He kind of gives because, okay, you killed the animal, you burned the fat on the altar, you sacrificed, you sprinkled the blood. Okay, here's my love. 
Like we, we have this notion that that's the way God, the way particularly the God of the Old Testament loves his people. That's not the way the first four verses of Hosea 11 sound. They sound like a, an exciting, loving, doting father. And, and the language is, I'm the one who stood behind you as you learned to walk. And you held your hands over your head. And I held your hands to keep you stable as you learned to develop the skill of walking. The language of the first four verses doesn't sound like someone who has suddenly found himself in a position he had no intention of ever being in. And he doesn't really know how he got there. And now he's stuck with these people that he has to call his children. And okay, I guess I'll do what I have to. It's actually the language of, it was my delight to love you, to deliver you, to heal you. To hold your hands and walk behind you as you learned to take your first steps. We, on the other hand, read Leviticus and think that's a pretty demanding God. That's a pretty exacting God because I've got to, you know, if this happens and if this bad things happens and if I come in contact with this kind of person or if my psoriasis flares up again or if I and then I shake hands with you and then what do you have to do or whatever, then I've got to do this. I've got to offer this sacrifice. I've got to sprinkle this blood and I've got to go through this washing cleansing process. That sounds really demanding. That sounds really difficult. It sounds like a yoke that's too burdensome to bear. But notice the language. I, I eased their yoke. Yes, I, I love them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I eased the yoke from their neck. This is the picture of a patient and loving father. But notice verse 2. Because verse 2 reminds us that Israel, though God's son, becomes the prodigal son. The one who wanders, the one who leaves, the one who rejects the father's care and protection and love and all of this to be the prodigal son. Because in verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. The more I cared for them, the more I gave my love for them, the more I offered to them, the more they kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. If... um, those of you men that have been around the last however many Wednesday nights as we've been working through first and second Kings, it would be easy, I think, for us, having watched this pattern over and over and over again, and the prophets of Baal and that attempt and then Yahweh sort of defeating them and and this constant perpetual pursuit of of worshiping Baal, it would be easy to think that that was sort of a a late in life development, right? Like kind of like we do with our kids. They're great and wonderful. And suddenly you add the word teen to their age and they suddenly turn into demons. 
And then when the teen is taken out of their name, they're wonderful again. Like we have this notion, well, it's a phase, right? They're going, we do that with Israel. Well, they're just going through a phase. But I want to show you something. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 25. I should have reminded you. Don't put your Bibles away. You're going to need that. In fact, you're going to need them again. We're going to go to the New Testament later. So keep them handy. Numbers 25. The first 10 verses. Uh, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These, the daughters, invited the people to to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is numbers. They're still in the wilderness. They've left Egypt. They haven't yet gotten to the promised land. Right? So... In Hosea's day or in first and second Kings, you're centuries later, you're six, seven, eight, nine centuries after the Exodus. Numbers 25. It's you're, you're measuring in months and years. You're not measuring in centuries. They're still in the wilderness. They're still. Wandering, They're still on the way to the promised land. It's not like it took them generations and generations and generations and generations and ages and ages of living among the pagan nations to go, huh, I'm going to try this for a time. In other words, part of the point is this isn't just a phase. This isn't new. That even then Israel Despite being called, despite being the more they were called, the more they went away, they kept sacrificing to the Baals. I mean, they're literally, physically, visibly under the loving care and guidance of Yahweh in the wilderness. Offering sacrifices to Baal. That's been a pattern. That's been their history. Baal worship didn't begin with Jeroboam the first in the northern kingdom. He was merely doing what has been a regular pattern in Israel's history. In other words, Israel is the prodigal son rejecting the father's love and care. How often do we do that? How often do we see clear, plain evidence of God's hand at work in our lives and we go, thanks but no thanks. Because what the world around me has to offer looks pretty good. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to, I don't want to look different from everybody else. I don't want to call attention to myself. I don't want to be different. I would rather just embrace the things of this world Because that seems pretty nice to me right now. Israel as the prodigal son rejects the father's loving care. And yet the father continues his patient loving care. You ever, um, this may be true in some of your marriages. I'm assuming it might be true in most marriages. 
Um, but there are there there is someone in the marriage, or you have a parent, or you have a child, or you have someone, and you frequently think to yourself, "I wish I knew what was going on inside that head of his. I wish I had any idea what was what was going on." Like they just don't talk, they don't say much. I, I sure wish there's got to be stuff going on. I wonder what's going on inside that head of his. For that matter, we will frequently come to the work of God in this world and we'll think to ourselves, I wonder why he did that, right? Why exactly did he make mosquitoes, right? Or is that a product of the fall, right? Or, or why did he allow this? Or why is he bringing, why did he allow tornadoes to destroy Rolling Fork? Why would he allow a shooter into a Christian school And we've reminded ourselves often that most of the time when we ask why questions, we don't get answers. And part of the Christian life is learning to be okay with that. If he doesn't tell us why in his word, we don't get to know why. And, and we have to be careful about making up reasons why. It's okay to take guesses, but you're better off going, look, let me make clear this is totally a guess. I have no idea, and he doesn't tell us, but maybe this. But here's the thing. In this passage, he actually lets us into a conversation in his own brain. He actually lets us hear the conundrum. He lets us hear the turmoil as he sort of debates and discusses within himself what he's going to do about Israel. Did you notice verses 8 and 9? There's almost this internal conversation, this internal monologue in the mind of God. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils. I will not execute judgment. I'm God, not a man. And it's that sort of moment where... Um, Gollum does this in one of the Hobbit movies. They show him turning aside and the debate within himself. He talks to himself. He hides behind the rock. And, uh, and, and you get that sense that that's exactly what's going on here, that God's having this conversation. He's kind of turned aside and is having this debate, this conundrum and letting it out for us to see and to hear. Now, first of all, let me just let me let me clarify a couple of things. Number one, God doesn't have conundrums in the sense that the future is lost in. He knows the future. He knows everything. Don't let the 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 I don't know ten years ago how I don't know how old it is that open theism thing right the idea that God doesn't know the end from the beginning that He doesn't hold the future right don't don't let this sort of indicate to you that God doesn't know things and for that matter when we in shorter Catechism four ask the question what is God and the answer is God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. 
We tend to think of God as like one of those balloons that the clowns use to tie into animals, right? I'm going to twist up this balloon into a dog or into a crown or where so that so that if we is, if his love is going to get bigger, if his goodness is going to get bigger, then that means his justice has to shrink. Right. That's those balloons. They are what they are. And, and if if you want one end, if you want some part of God to get bigger, you have to shrink some other part. That's not what that catechism is saying. And that's not what the Bible teaches. He's not goodness and justice at odds with each other. He is all good and all just all the time. He's infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his holiness. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. Here's why I bring that up. Because in in Hosea 11, particularly in verses 8 and 9, we hear what sounds to us like conflict between, between God's goodness and his justice. Between his mercy and his justice. Can I destroy you? The implication, of course, is they deserve it. And they do. They absolutely deserve to be destroyed. But God asks himself, can I destroy you? Can I annihilate you? Can I actually execute the judgment that you deserve? Will I actually go through as far as I have to, to execute my justice and destroy you because that is exactly what your rebellion deserves. Or, do I stay my hand of judgment and withhold that punishment? From a human perspective, that's the conundrum. From from our sort of mindset, that seems to be Yahweh's dilemma. And I love the way he's given us that. He's given us that glimpse into that turmoil. Because I want you to notice something. In verse 9, he promises, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy. However, read verses 5 through 7. There are swords in the streets of Ephraim, Israel, the northern tribe. Is Assyria will be their king. How is it that verse 9 can be true as well as verses 5 and 6? How is it that I will not execute my burning anger and yet the Assyrian army is going to come and defeat Israel and scatter you to the winds and never to be reformed? Remember, The Israel we know later in the Old Testament is Judah returned from their exile, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom essentially ends when Assyria comes and defeats them. The people are committed to rebellion. They're bent on turning away from me, verse 7. They deserve the wrath and curse of God. Children's catechism. And yes, they're going to be carried off into 
into Assyria. They're going to be carried off for good and, and never to exist. And we're still a hundred years or so away from Judah's return, maybe a little more than that. And so they deserve God's unmitigated wrath. But is that what they get? I, I want to point out a footnote to you. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 ends with, I will not come in wrath. The, the ESV says, I will not come in wrath. There's a footnote there. And it says, or it could be, I will not come into the city. Here's the connection. The connection is that Adma and Zeboim are cities near Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities that were destroyed right along with them in Genesis 19. God went into the city of Sodom. And because he went into the city of Sodom, his unmitigated wrath fell on them. The, the connection is, if I were to come into the city, I would have no choice but to destroy it. I will not come in wrath. I will not actually come into the city itself. That's the picture. That's the, the idea behind uh, the Hebrew there in verse 9. And yet, he does bring judgment. He does bring punishment. He does send them to Assyria. But he doesn't bring his unmitigated wrath and justice, which is what they deserve. He's fully just and fully gracious. At the same time, all the time. If you heard a lion roar outside this door right here, which direction would you move? I mean, the likelihood of you going out that door seems pretty slim. It seems pretty. You might go look out that window. You might be tempted to go out that door because then you're closer to your car and you can get away from the lion that's roaring outside there. You may decide, I'm just going to stay put because I'm pretty sure without an opposable thumb, he can't open that door. <laughs> but did you notice the language of verse 10 and 11? God roars like a lion and his people come to him. That's not normal. That's not, you don't go towards a roaring lion. You run from a roaring lion. When Yahweh roars like a lion, his people actually come. They come running. Okay, yes, they're trembling, but they come. Is he quite safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. That's what Lewis captures in Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
How is it possible? How is it possible that Yahweh can roar like a lion and his people will come? How is it possible that justice and mercy can meet in one place? How is it possible that God's prodigal children can deserve his unmitigated wrath and yet not receive it? Because Jesus did. What we celebrate on this coming Friday, and yes, celebrate is a great word for it, is the true Son of Israel, the true Son of God, the perfect Son of God, the greater Israel, in fact. Prodigal son Israel rejects the father's love and care. Jesus, the perfect son and faithful son, embraces all that the father has for him. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Let me just make one quick connection for you. Uh, Matthew 2, 2, verse 13. Uh, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night uh, and departed to Egypt. Verse 15. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew reads Hosea 11 verse 1 and says that's Jesus it's in Christ where his infinite mercy his infinite wrath meet where the adopted son failed the eternal son was faithful where the adopted son rebelled the eternal son rejoiced where the adopted son rejected the eternal son Embraced. And part of the picture here is that Jesus doesn't just do that for Israel, but for us. Because we've rejected the Father's love and care. We've turned our backs on Him. We've, we've rejected His uh, love and care and provision for us. We've ascribed His grace and mercy and work to us, to other gods. We have given ourselves to the gods of this world. And yet Jesus, the true son, pays that debt for us. You do realize that God doesn't forgive your sin by basically pretending it didn't happen. Right? I mean, you do realize that he doesn't just, oh, it's okay, I know you meant well. I know you tried. I know you had good intentions. I know you were trying real hard. I understand. It's okay. We'll, we'll talk about it later. It's, it's fine. It's not a big deal. No, it actually is a huge deal. It's such a big deal that his son was killed for it. It's not that God ignores the sin. It's that the sin has been paid. The reason you don't receive the wrath and justice that your sin demands is because Jesus already has. Had another one of those moments um, 
yesterday when I realized I wish I had chosen a different closing hymn. And thankfully, nobody's internet or phones were working in this part of the world yesterday. So I couldn't change it on you. But I'm reminded of uh, a hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. The fourth verse, let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. Grace and justice, which we think of as opposite ends of a spectrum, grab hands and say, look, there's mercy. And they're both pointing to the same thing. But when through grace in Christ, our Christ, our trust is. Grammar lesson, right? You had to rearrange it to make the rhyme work, right? So when through grace, our trust is in Christ, but because that doesn't rhyme with. When through grace in Christ, our trust is. Justice smiles. And asks no more. Justice, the justice of God looks at the cross and says. I have nothing left to demand. I'm satisfied. It's done. That's at least one of the things Jesus meant when he said it is finished. I I can't I can't ask for anything else. My demands are met. Grace and justice point to the cross and say there is mercy And there in the cross of Christ, justice, God's righteous justice has been met. Is that your hope? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you you living out of this reality that your standing is not I guess I got to love this kid because, I mean, Jesus died for him and now I don't really want to, but I guess I got to. Or do you see the father who delights in you? Not because you're perfect, not because you're good, but because you are covered by the blood of Christ. Because his justice says no more. And it does so at least according to the hymn writer, not begrudgingly, but with a smile on his face. Justice scowls and says, okay, fine, no more. That's not what the hymn writer wrote. Justice smiles and says, I'm done. May God grant us the grace to live out of that reality. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, would you set right our view of you? Of your love for us? uh, Of your care for us? Of your delight in us? And would you grow in us a greater desire To live in response to that delight. To to live out of that smile. to, To live with confidence that we are yours because of Jesus. And not begrudgingly, but joyfully. And would you use us to 
to grow that message, that hope through Athens and beyond. We ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.